Please be seated. Good evening to you. Esther chapter 3 this evening in our journey through the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. If you're with us tonight and you do not have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you just wave to them, that will be a signal to them that you'd like a Bible, and they'll get one into your hands. And if you don't own a Bible, please make, take that one home as a gift from the Lord tonight. We remember that the book of Esther has no mention of the name of God in the entire book. God is not mentioned by name. And again, we look at it and say, is this an omission on the part of the Holy Spirit? Did he forget to you know, include God in the book? The fact of the matter is it's just marvelous in the way that the Holy Spirit is working because in not mentioning the name of God in the book, and yet God works all the way through the book, the Holy Spirit is communicating the very theme of the book, and that is God is always active even when we can't see it. One of the great things about walking with the Lord for a while, maybe that's six months, you know, maybe that's 60 years. I've been able to walk with the Lord for about 30 years now. One of the great things about having a little bit of time with the Lord is that, and one of the reasons the book of Esther is so special to me, and the theme of the book of Esther is so special to me, is that you have this kind of history with God. And again, it doesn't have to be years to have this kind of a history with God, where you look back on so many situations where it looked like God was asleep or it looked like God wasn't working in the situation. And then in one hour, and literally, we, we won't get to it tonight, but literally in one hour, God turns the whole thing around in a pivotal moment in, in human history as it relates to the Jews. And in and, and, and that moment, when all of a sudden he does what he does, then you can look backwards and see his fingerprints everywhere. And prior to that, to save your life, you couldn't make sense of what he was doing, why he was doing it, why he was doing it that way. And the book of Esther, to me, is one of the great um, examples, the great uh, teachings and illustrations of Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 28, that we know that all things work together for good to those who are the, uh, love God and are called according to his purposes. And so, but sometimes he's working all things together for good, but sometimes we can't see it until a particular moment in time. And so this is what the great theme is. Sometimes God is hidden in his activity, but he is always active, so often working so supernaturally, naturally, that we don't recognize his involvement until long after the fact. Chapter 3, after these things, King Ahasuerus, he promoted Haman. It's okay to boo this particular point. There we go. We can have a little... He is worthy to be booed um, in the scriptures. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of uh, Hamadatha, the Agagite, and he advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. So here is King Ahasuerus, Xerxes. He is over uh, the Persian Empire. 127 provinces make up that empire, including Israel. And so uh, 
he would have representatives of all of these provinces as a part of his kind of cabinet and inner, you know, leadership and all. And he now makes Haman, gives him a position that is higher than everybody else's position. So he's kind of second in command in the entire Persian Empire. And all of the king's servants who were within the king's gate, that's where leaders hung out, at the king's gate, they bowed down and they paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. So a decree was given, this guy is like the grand poobah, he's the head over all of you, and uh, in terms of authority, and so in recognition of that, when he comes into the room or he passes by, then you are to bow down in, in, in order to respect um, his, his position. And, and, uh, but Mordecai, uh, Esther's uh, uncle, or cousin rather, who was raised her, he would not bow or pay homage. He refused to do it. Uh, we're going to see in just a couple of verses that the reason that he refuses to bow down before this man uh, is because he is a Jew. So this, he, do, he refuses to do so um, uh, because of his religious convictions, and it's just too close to worship of another human being uh, than he's comfortable with. So he refuses to do that. And then the king's servants who were within the king's gate, all of these other leaders, and remember uh, Mordecai is, has a position of some authority in the uh, Persian Empire at this point in time. That's why he's hanging out at the king's gate, probably received that position when Esther became a queen. And so they notice all of this. Everybody's doing this bowing, and uh, Mordecai isn't bowing. And so those that were within the gate, they said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And, and uh, that's the question that they made. They noticed all of this. And now it happened when they spoke to him daily, he wouldn't listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. And so they see this kind of a rebellion or uh, insurrection on the part of Mordecai. He is not obeying the command of the king to do this toward Haman. And so they want, uh, they don't know why it's unusual to them, certainly in the Persian Empire, you don't see any kind of rebellion at all. So this is a curious thing to them. And so they take the word of it to Haman and say, hey, this guy's not bowing down and we're all bowing down. Are you going to let this stand? Or how does this thing work? And for Mordecai, had told them that he was a Jew. So they inform on him, and they knew that he was a Jew. He probably, uh, he had revealed that to them, obviously. And they want to get in the good side of Haman. Haman is a very powerful man, obviously, now. And so it's like they come up to him and say, hey, listen, how come this and everything, and you're being disrespected and all. And then maybe when he deals with it with Mordecai, then they would get some kind of a perk or something. So there's a lot going on, you know, always in uh, leadership of any nation. And when Haman saw this, Mordecai did not bow or pay uh, him homage. Haman was filled with wrath. So he hadn't noticed it up till then. You ever have somebody point something out to you and life was perfectly pleasant until they did? You hadn't even noticed that someone was insulting you every time they were around you. And then now you got to point it out and now I notice it. And so that's what happened with Haman. Up to this point, 
he hadn't uh, noticed it at all, but now every time he walks by, he does notice it, and, and it filled him uh, with, with wrath over all of this. And when Haman, uh, and, and so he's going to take an action related to this, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, didn't arrest him alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai that he was a Jew, and instead Haman sought to destroy all all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. And so he took note of this. He's filled with wrath. And as revenge, you know, Haman's wrath couldn't be appeased with the death of Mordecai alone. His ego is so great, so out of control, that the only thing that can appease him and satisfy him is, is not only the destruction of Mordecai, but the destruction of every single Jew in the entire Persian Empire. Fifteen million people. This guy's out of control. He doesn't have a sense of proportion as it relates to his life. And so he is the classic Jew hater in history, and there have been plenty of them. But he's also a classic picture of the prejudiced or the bigoted man. The person who comes to conclusions about and comes to hate an entire group of people based upon a bad experience with one of them. And it's in all of us, the capability for it, whether in some small measure or some large measure. It's all there from Adam and Eve. But where we take and, and can look at something and we, when we uh, ha have been dealt with wrongly by, and it doesn't matter whether it's rich or poor, educated or uneducated, boss or employee, black, white, Jew, Gentile, whatever, that tendency of this kind of person to look and say, I have had contact with one of those people so I know what all of those people are like. And that's what he does. And this is, this is common also in people's perception of the church, where people very often feel like, I had, uh, I, I had an uncle who was a Christian, or I had a cousin who was a Christian, or I had a co-worker who was a Christian. And then they judge every Christian in the whole wide world. We're talking about hundreds of millions of people in the whole wide world on the basis of an encounter with one single person that makes up that group. And so this is, uh, this is what he does. And so his pride has been hurt. And in his mind, his pride is more important than an entire race of people. And uh, it's really, really scary, but especially scary in powerful people. So you have, here you have a small man in a very large office, a small man with a lot of power. And that always has been a very, very bad thing for people in general in human history, but certainly for the Jews. A small, tiny little person who's been given great authority. Usually life is made miserable for the whole world by the time uh, things uh, play out. And in the first month, which is in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, and pur is the uh, Persian word for a lot, so they cast the lot before Haman to determine the day and the month until it fell 
on the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And so a lot was cast in order to determine the date of the destruction of their Jews. The Persians were very, very uh, uh, kind of superstitious people. They believed in fate. They believed in gods to guide these things. And so he is seeking the Persian gods to, for the correct date to annihilate the, every Jew within the Persian Empire. Imagine a God that you can seek, you know, related to that kind of a request and, and expect an answer back. And he does get an answer back. Uh, there's, like Paul wrote about the idols as he wrote to the Corinthians. He says the idols are nothing. These little statues that are here and these temples and all this stuff, it's just nothing. It's all bogus. It's just, it can't walk, it can't see, it can't talk. And, ah, but the demons behind them, that's a different story. The devil has always had his eye on the destruction of the Jews. And so here is this casting of the lot, and, uh, and they cast the purr, and of course the whole festival, as we'll see uh, next time, uh, related to what God does here is the, is the celebration of Purim for the Jews, and it comes from this Persian word for the casting of a lot. And so they, he cast the lot, and, and then... Uh, the, the date falls on the 12th month. And so, uh, interesting, again, we see the providence of God, the sovereignty of God at work, uh, the fingerprints of God that they aren't going to recognize until later, that here he goes, he's trying to establish a date for the destruction of the Jews. And here God takes and overrules it, and, and the date ends up getting set 12 months later. The Jews have 12 months to prepare for this uh, onslaught against them. And basically what God was wanting was the 12 months to simply work out his plan uh, in related to Jewish history and human history. And then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain uh, uh, people. So he approaches the king with his kind of plan for uh, destroying the people. He's only second in command. He can't destroy an entire minority population in the Persian Empire without the king's uh, permission to do that. And so now he's got to get the king on his side, and he's a master manipulator. Now, um, king Ahasuerus is completely guilty in what he does here. He's very, very careless in how he conducts himself, and that's putting it mildly in all of this. But a king like that is trusting his leaders, especially a leader who is in second command, to give him good information in order to make the best decisions that he can make. And this is not an, uh, kind of an informative thing that Haman is doing to him. This is a manipulation. He wants the Jews dead, and now he's got to manipulate the king to come alongside his plan, uh, though the king uh, never realizes till later that it was the Jews that he was talking about, not as though the destruction of any other people would have made it better. So here's his kind of his whole thing that he lays out to the king. There's a certain people, doesn't name them by name, and they're scattered and they're dispersed among the people of all of the provinces in your kingdom. These folks are everywhere. And their laws are different from all other people's laws, and they don't keep the king's laws. And therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. And so he, he, he takes this, and again, he, he takes what uh, Mordecai has done to him. Mordecai has defied the law that was given 
based upon religious conviction that he had as a Jew. And so here is Haman. He looks and he's going to project that on every Jew. So Haman violated, or, or Mordecai violated the law of God, and so this means the Jews everywhere in the Persian Empire are a bunch of lawbreakers, and they need to be uh, uh, dealt with. They're a rebellious people. They are a danger. And so he proposes this, verse 9, if it pleases the king, let a decree be written that they may be destroyed. Well, this guy doesn't do anything by half measures, does he? wants to destroy all of the Jews and the entire uh, empire. And remember again, Israel is a part of the Persian Empire. There's going to be the destruction of every Jew in Israel if he's successful here. And so, that they may be destroyed. And then he offers to pick up the tab for it. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work and bring it into the king's treasury. So he doesn't want the king to say, no, money's a little bit tight right now and the tax revenues aren't that great. I don't want to pay for that kind of thing. So he says, I'll do it on my dime. I'll pay for it. We're talking about millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in today's dollars that's represented in the offer that he makes. So this man is fabulously wealthy to offer. And this is how great his hatred is toward the Jews because of his hatred toward Haman. The Bible warns in the New Testament, uh, warns us as Christians uh, against this sin or of the flesh called malice. So often we read it and we think malice, okay, what, you know, what is that? And we just keep moving. But malice means to have ill will toward another person. And the Apostle Paul, when he spoke, wrote again to the Corinthians, he spoke about kind of, he likened malice to leaven. In other words, it's something that gets bigger and bigger and bigger in a person's life. Where a little bit of malice toward one individual human being. You say, I hate that person. When I think of that person, all I can think about is the bad that I want to have happen to them because of the person that they are and because of what they've done to me. And if that kind of malice is left unchecked, Paul says it never stays compartmentalized and directed toward that one person. It will then begin to take over a life until a person has no capacity to enjoy life at all because of the malice that they have directed toward a, a single person. So here's a guy, he has, he's, number, he's number two in the whole wide world. In terms of power, you want power? That's power. He didn't, he didn't wake up at, at, at 12 years old and say, you know, someday I'm going to be the second most powerful man in the whole wide world. This is like a dream come true to this kind of person. He has more money than he can spend in 10 lifetimes. He's got everything. And he cannot enjoy a single bit of it because of the sin of malice directed toward a single person. It will overtake our lives and it will destroy our lives if we allow it to remain. And so Paul warns concerning this sin of malice. So he offers to pay uh, for it so the king wouldn't have to pay for it to make it easier then for the king to say yes to his request. And so the king took his signet ring. This represented his signature from his hand. He gave it to Haman and uh, the enemy of the Jews. And the king then said to Haman, the money, I don't want your money. It'll come out of royal treasuries. Thanks for the offer. But 
but the money and the people are given to you. Do with them as seems good to you. And so he's so convinced by Haman's case here that he grants the request that, is, uh, that, that he makes here. He never inquires as to what particular group of people are we talking about. So he's very careless in, 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 in that, though it wouldn't be right to do to any group of people. But he gives, uh, gives the approval then for this uh, to, to happen and for it to be done in his authority. He has no idea at this point in time that the decree that he is allowing, uh, that he is approving on the part of Haman is going to reach right into his marriage. His queen is a Jewess, and he does, not, uh, he does not know that at this point in time, and he doesn't know that this is the people that he's targeting here. And so, as the uh, uh, permission was given, then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month. The decree was written according to all that uh, Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. And in the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet uh, ring. So the scribes wrote all of these, got to write a lot of these, you know, orders to then send to, out to an empire that's this big, and the letters were then sent by couriers to all of the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews. So Haman, he got, as soon as he got rid of by the king, he starts dictating. I mean, he's using, uh, you know, amazing language, so nobody has to guess uh, what is supposed to be done to the Jews, both young and old, little children and women in one day, he gives the date on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. And so he gives them these uh, Gentiles that uh, would hate the Jews the same way that he did. He gives them the added incentive of not only killing the Jews, but if you do that, you can have everything that they own as well. So he's just appealing to the darkest, most demonic uh, part of of the human heart. And after all, if they're all dead, what do they need with their possessions? So you can make them your own. Well, a line would form both, unfortunately, not just in those days as it did and we'll see, but a line would form uh, for this, if this very command went out even today related to the Jews. And a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. And the couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was pro proclaimed in Shushan, the very, uh, one of the capital cities uh, of Persia, where all of these events were taking place. And so the king and Haman sat down to drink. And so they celebrated all of this by sitting down and uh, having a drink and probably having a meal together. I mean, it's just a, one of the pictures, uh, greatest pictures of just cold-hearted whatever in a human heart to order the destruction of an entire minority population within a country and, and to order that, and then to sit down and have a drink together. It's just terrible when th th that, that kind of an absence of character is, is present 
in leaders with that much power. And so they sat down to drink, but the whole city of Shushan was perplexed. Not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles, also the Persians. This action that's being taken by Haman and also being taken by the king was no reflection on the common uh, Persian people in Shushan, the citadels of Persia today is Iran. And so these people looked and they heard it, even those that were Persians, and they were appalled by the decree that had been given. So here you have the general population of the empire has a higher degree of character and conscience than their leaders. That's not the last time that's happened in human history. And so they are appalled. This does not represent... Obviously, for the Jews, uh, this was something where they were perplexed, but even the Gentiles looked at it and said, where in the world did this come from? This does not represent us as a people. And so everybody was perplexed by, uh, by you know, what, what had been uh, decreed here. The only two that weren't were the king and Haman. And at this point in time, Haman is literally on top of the world. And he does not realize, in targeting the Jews, he has signed his death certificate. He is going to be dead in a matter of months. Because God said to Abraham, I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. They had no more hope of eradicating the Jews from the face of the earth or even the Persian Empire than, you know, putting on wings and flying to the moon. So chapter 4. It's interesting to realize here too, though before we get into chapter 4, is that Esther is ignorant of all of this. She is in a very protected kind of situation as the queen. She has no idea that the decree has gone forth. And while Mordecai learned of all that had happened, as soon as he hears about this decree uh, as a Jew, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, signs of mourning. He went into the midst of the city, just walks right out in the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He does not hide his Jewishness. And so he tears his clothes. He is a picture of mourning, not only in his outward appearance, but he is crying and wailing, walking through the whole city, making a public stand against this decree that had been made. So this is what he does. Probably Mordecai is not only, of course, lamenting the decree, But he also realizes that Haman has foisted this whole plan because of the fact that Mordecai refused to bow down to him. So he is feeling, rightfully or wrongfully, and it would be wrongfully, he is feeling a responsibility that the decision that he has made has been interpreted the way that it has by a madman and has now put his entire people in the Persian Empire in jeopardy. 
So his heart is broken on every kind of level that a heart can be broken. And so he's crying, and he went as far as the front of the king's gate, went right up to the palace, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. You couldn't come before those ancient kings. You couldn't go into the presence of a king with a sad face, because why in the world would anybody be sad if I'm the king? They took everything personally as an affront. So here he is wearing all of these symbols of mourning, and, and he goes all the way up to the gate, but he couldn't go uh, into the gate because his life would be put in jeopardy as a result of it because the king would then interpret that as someone who was publicly mourning and standing against some proclamation that he had made, and specifically this particular proclamation. And in every province where the king's commanded decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews. Imagine as they hear this news, my wife, my children, my grandchildren, my niece, my nephews, my neighbor, everybody in the synagogue. You know, I mean, it would just be like a, just a bomb went off in your head. One morning you wake up and you're having um, uh, eggs and tofu or something, and, uh, and, and it's just going to be a regular day, and the decree comes into town, and then boom, here it is, and everything changes. Great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so Esther's maids and eunuchs, they came to her, and, and they reported the condition of Mordecai to her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Hey, you, you know, you're kind of your dad's last cousin is out there and he's wearing these sackcloth and he's wailing and the whole thing and this is what he's doing out there. She's doing what? She has no idea what he's responding to, but she's embarrassed for how he's conducting himself. And so she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth from him, but he wouldn't accept them. And Esther called um, Hatach, one of the king's eunuchs whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn what and why this was. She knows something is up, and so Hatach went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews, and he also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her what was going on, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication for him, to him, and to plead before him for her people. And if Hatak and the others did not know that Esther was a Jew up to this point, a Jewess, then they know now. And so Hatak uh, returned and he told Esther the words of Mordecai. And so this is, uh, you know, as everything is, is unfolding now within kind of the, the king's harem, everyone becomes uh, aware of, of what it is that's happening. And then Esther spoke uh, to this uh, eunuch attendant and gave him a command from Mordecai. And she said, all of the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces, uh, they know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called specifically by the king, he has but one law put all to death. 
So here you can't even show up in front of these ancient kings with a sad face. Not only does he not want any bad news, but they didn't even want to be interrupted. <laughs> what seems to be in a king? They didn't want to be interrupted. If you interrupted the king in the course of his day, you could be killed. The only reason it wouldn't result in death was if the king then held out his golden scepter that the person that was interrupting him off of the agenda for the day that he may live. And yet I myself have not been called to go into the king for these 30 days. And so she says, I don't know what my status is with the king. I mean, you know how this guy is and what's going on here. I'm the queen, but you know, there's a lot of women in this harem. The last time I was with this guy was 30 days ago, and I don't know, in a 30-day separation where he's just busy about other things or whether I've displeased him in some way and it's a bad time to go in front of him, I don't know. But a 30-day absence isn't a good sign. And you need to understand what you're telling me to go in and talk with him and plead and supplicate for the Jewish people. It's not as easy as you think it is. I'm going to put my life on the line in, in order uh, to do that. And so Mordecai, they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai's response was, told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than, any, uh, than all the other Jews. See, again, as we saw last week, the decree of the Medes and the Persians, that was an irrevocable law. Even if it was a bad law. Even if it was a wrong law. That's why, uh, let it be according uh, to the law of the Medes and the Persians. That means it was set in concrete. There is no changing that. And so he is saying, that's the decree that's gone forth. And there's no exception for the fact that when the king discovers that his wife is a Jewess, that law is in place and it's going to reach all the way to the top. So don't think that you have the power to undo this decree. Now, it's a strong words, but she needed to hear it. Not saying that she was, you know, backing away or anything, but it was the truth about it and she needed to know the truth. For if you remain completely silent... If you don't advocate for our people, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Here we see the faith of Mordecai. We don't see a lot about his relationship with God. A lot isn't revealed in the book. But again, he knows the promises from Genesis that God gave to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, speaking of the Jewish people. So he knew the plans that God had for the Jewish people, and we know the great, single great gift that has occurred in human history through the Jewish people was to bring a Savior into the world. And so he knows that God has a plan for the Jewish people. He's not going to allow them to be destroyed by an evil man on the basis of his promises. So he's a man of faith. He's a man of the word. So he isn't concerned that the Jews are going to be completely destroyed. He knows that God isn't going to allow that to happen on whatever level he doesn't know. And, but he, he tells her that unless you stand up, then there is going to be some uh, partial, at least partial kind of persecution against the Jews 
And you may uh, find that uh, it reaches all the way into the palace uh, before, you know, everything kind of stops burning. And then he says to her, yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And that sentence there in verse 14 of chapter 4 of the book of Esther is the most uh, famous verse in the book of Esther. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And here Mordecai uh, floats out the possibility to her that she has been placed in the position of queen for exactly this moment in human history. And he just asked her to stop and think about that. What are the odds of you becoming the queen of the world-ruling empire at this time? What are the odds of Vashti disrespecting the king and him searching for another queen and all of these events and all that you land in this kind of a place? And he just wants her to think about the fact that maybe God has placed her in this high position, given her this kind of favor, long before God would need her related to his will, and, and that she had been placed in that, in that position exactly for what was facing her at this moment. So that she hadn't become queen by just pure chance, but that God had ruled over and overruled all of the circumstances surrounding her in the fallenness of this world to put her kind of in that strategic place to rise up, do the right thing for God's people and God's plan for mankind uh, through her. And, and so this is the thing that he plants within her. And I'll tell you, every single one of us should believe that about our lives. Why weren't you born in the 1400s? Why weren't you born in the 700s? Why weren't you born in the 1800s? Why are you alive at this moment in human history? Do you think it's an accident? It isn't an accident. So I just happen to be here and I get to see, you know, the iPod be developed and, and uh, the iPhone and all these kind. And, and so we just kind of go through life and it's like, okay, we just kind of popped into the scene here and we navigate all of this and then we get out. That is to have such a low view of our lives and the sovereignty of God and the providence of God you and I are alive today at this moment in human history for God's purposes. We have been called by God to live for him for such a time as this. He strategically places, if you have a peace in your heart about your life, so I have a peace I'm in the home or the apartment that I'm supposed to be in. I have a peace that I'm in the city that I'm supposed to be in. I have a peace that I hold a job and I have a place in a professional world that I'm supposed to be in. 
And if you have a peace about these things and other things related to your life, then you are in the place that you are in by God's design and for God's purposes. And he can put you in that place years before it ever becomes apparent for why he has put you there. And no, it may not involve the salvation of 15 million people physically. It may be the salvation of a single person. Or it may be the sharing of the gospel or the life of Christ with a single person. And you may not even lead them to Christ. You may be the third person in a line of seven people that are going to witness to that person, but it will take all of that for them to receive Christ and then become the next what for God in the world who then affects millions of people. We don't know. But we know we're alive by God's design and for his purposes at this moment in human history. We have been raised up for such a time as this. And this message from the book of Esther is so important for us, especially when things get difficult in the world. And to be able to look at the circumstances of the world... And to realize, and to say, oh, what a bummer, I had to live at this time. I had to graduate from college at a time that there are no jobs, and I don't know when in the world there will be any. But instead to just look at it and to realize that we have been made for this hour in human history. We've been made for it. We've been prepared for it. God has allowed us to live at this time in human history and maybe the last generation before Jesus raptures the church out. But we've been made for this hour. And so this recognition of God's sovereignty, of his providence in our life. Not just Esther. The book of Esther isn't in the book, isn't in the book just to teach us about Esther. But so that we believe this about ourselves. And so we need to believe that about ourselves. Is that to be haughty or be proud? No, it isn't at all. It's to introduce a great excitement and an anticipation in our lives. And all these things that can beat us down, all of the bad news, all of the difficulty, all of the challenges of living in this world, and some of the unique challenges of living in this world and the day in which we live in it. And to just stop and to realize, from the counsel of Mordecai here, to realize, I have been made for this hour. I am in human history at this time for divine reasons. And God is going to unfold and accomplish those reasons. What meaning, what purpose, what anticipation that brings to a human life. But it isn't just for the purpose of bringing those things to our life. We want to believe those things because they are true about each one of our lives. Someone may sit here tonight and say, listen, I'm 87 years old and I've lived all the way through here and I haven't seen anything remotely like this in terms of some dramatic moment in my life where I made this stand and there was this obvious, this is why I'm in human history. You don't need to know. 
All you need to do is have a peace about being where you are and doing the thing that you're doing. And then it's God's business to make our lives significant as it relates to His work and as it relates to human history. We've been made for this hour. We've been made for such a time as this. And then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all of the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. I'll go in, but I'm not going to go in without prayer. And tell all the Jews to neither eat nor drink for three days, a total fast, night or day. My maids and I will also fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law, she reminds him. And if I perish, I perish. And this whole thing with her is just a beautiful declaration of surrender to God. It isn't, hey, listen, if I die, I hope you're happy. That's not what's going on here. She said, if I perish, I perish. And the whole idea here is she's responding to what Mordecai said to her. Who knows whether you have been, you know, raised up, come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And she says, all right, I'll do it. And if I perish, I perish. There's only one way to find out what God is up to here, and that is to do the right thing, even if it costs me my life, and to see what he does with that. And so that's the commitment that she makes here. And so Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. And so it'll be three days gap between chapters 4 and 5 before the whole uh, account continues. We'll have to wait seven days before we pick it up as a group because we're going to stop there now and we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper this evening.